and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am joined by two people who have also read their fair share of Mark Twain, Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. How's it going, y'all? <laughs> hey, David. Hey, David. Hey, David, ask Heidi how she's feeling. Okay, hold on a second. Um, hey, Heidi, how are you feeling? Oh, thanks for asking, guys. I have been really sick with what? the flu. I know, it's a surprise. Um, yeah, I've been flu? sick, but... It's the worst. It's like a horrible, horrible disease. And I really was like ready for leeches and, oh man, like sent away for a rest cure. So you know how people... Bloodletting? Yeah. You know how people question the veracity, the the, uh, success rate of bloodletting and leeches? Mm -hmm. I have been thinking about this and I have a question. That's because you recently had the flu. That's why you've been thinking about it. (laughs) Perhaps they can't prove. I mean, perhaps they, they, I can see why they don't think that it worked great, but can they prove that it didn't work great? Like, can you prove that leeches didn't work? We may not be able to prove that they do work, but I want to know the science on proving that they didn't work. It's so true. I mean, I, I have no, you, you can't, that's, you can't prove like, a negative, right? Modern people are so skeptical of things like this. But I want to know, what if we're letting all kinds of health benefits go by not taking leeches on our bodies? <laughs> I was ready to try it. Welcome back to the land of the living. The so here I am. Sorry about the scratchy voice. <clears throat> well, it's that time of year. Tim, I guess that means you're next. <laughs> I have been so pleased not to rub it in or anything that I haven't gotten sick this year. And it's because I have been taking like about every other day a dose of vitamin C, and I think that just you've been does leeching, it. haven't you? I've been heavily leeching. leeching. They can't prove that it doesn't work. That's so true. <laughs> I mean, you are proving that it does work. Mm-hmm. My leeching is it. yep. Well, you you are a model. Way. A model. You're a da- you're a data point. Mm. Well, we are here uh, not to discuss leeching or the flu. Although, you know, one never knows what's going to come up and be related to the topic at hand. But we are here to discuss Peace Like a River, Leif Anger's novel, Peace Like a River. We are deep into the heart of the book. We are drawing near to the denouement. And we are uh, going to be discussing one of my favorite sections in this whole book. Um, I just want to throw that out there. Before we do that, though, I want to remind you how you can get in touch with the show. You can, of course, join the conversation along with thousands of other people on the Facebook group. You can go to Close Reads. But you can also go to Instagram or Twitter and follow us along at Close Reads Pods. And then, of course, we do have the email newsletter, which is closereads.substack.com. And then finally, if you want to actually email us directly, you can email us at closereadspodcast at gmail.com. That's a lot of things that uh, you have to uh, keep track of. But you know, maybe one of those things will, will work out for you. I also want to mention something that we have not yet talked about on the podcast, and that is the uh, the Close Reads retreat that's going to be happening this summer. The three of us are going to be uh, hosting, co-hosting. What do you call it when you've got three people hosting something? Tri-hosting. 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 Yeah. Well, either way, we're going to be collective. I think everybody knows that, David. It's tri-hosting. The tri-hosting. Uh-huh. We are going to... Trifecta. 
to host. To host. Trifecta yes. host. A retreat. And we are going to be discussing uh, three of Wendell Berry's short novels, two of his famous essays, and then several of his poems. It's going to be a great retreat. If you ever have been to or heard about the Cersei Summer Institute, it's kind of going to be the same vibe. We're going to be staying at the Chitola Resort in Blowing Rock, uh, North Carolina, up in the mountains. Uh, well, although if you live in Denver, maybe not the mountains for you. It's a different sort of mountains. But um, we are going to be... The Rolling Hills, the North rolling Carolina. Hills, yeah. Yeah, not quite the Smokies, but um, we are going to be discussing uh, just the, the canon of Wendell Berry, what he has to offer for modern people living in a modern world who also perhaps don't want to let go of things that are not so modern. So we're going to eat together. We're going to uh, talk about books together. We're, each morning, we're going to begin with uh, breakfast together and then talk about one of Wendell Berry's poems, the daily poem, if you will, and do that over coffee. And we're going to uh, have great conversations. And it's limited to 15 or so people. So if you want to claim one of the few spots that are available, then uh, get in touch with me. Um, and if you want to learn more, you can head over to CerseiInstitute.com slash retreat to get more information on that. So we've heard a lot from a lot of people over the years who have said that they are interested in some sort of a retreat like that. And this is going to be our uh, first foray into that, I suppose. Um, and we'll see how it goes and if there's other things like this to be done. But you know, we'd love to have you join us. It's going to be fun. You want to add anything, either of you? It really is so fun. And I want to cook something this year. And what are you going to cook, Heidi? Have, I don't know. Have I the, have a plan. You have the flu, though, so you might get people well, sick. Well, that's a day. I can't get you sick over the airway. Maybe I can. That would be power. <laughs> that would be power. So, can't prove that you can't. Can't prove that you can't. But yes, we should maybe some try some leaching. <laughs> I don't think anyone wants to eat leeches. Tim, do you have anything you want to add? Well, I have a question. What are people going to feel like at the end of this retreat? You know what I mean? Like I have a notion victorious. of what it's like. They're going to feel victorious. Yeah, they're going to retreat and they're going to retreat and they're going to retreat until they're victorious. Very British. Do, okay. the, do the British retreat? They celebrate their retreats, right? Uh, Isn't that, <laughs> into the Valley of Death, Road the 600. Mm, <laughs> yes, yes. I, I Now I'm with you now. I'm with you now. What, Tim, what are you hoping to feel like at the end of the retreat? Because most likely we're all going to feel exhausted but happy. That's that's exactly what I'm hoping for. That's what I feel like at the end of a Circe conference. I'm like slap exhausted and very content. And I'm kind of hoping the same thing will happen. Yes. So here's, here's the way I think about it. I think this is a good metaphor. And also it's not a metaphor because I think it's going to be true. You know how you go to a great restaurant? Like one year we went to, we were in Charleston and we all went to this oyster joint, right? Oh, and we had a so tower good. of oysters and all kinds of other seafood. And we had wine and we were there for a long time. And so you go and you do that and you have multiple courses and you, it's a whole experience, right? And it takes you, if you're doing it right, it takes you a long time. By the end of that, you're full. You don't feel like you want to walk anywhere in not 100 degree weather back to a hotel, <laughs> say. And yet you feel happy. That yeah. is what I think it's going to be like. I can't exactly promise there's right. going to be oysters there. In fact, I would say there probably won't be. But otherwise, you know, I think it works out as a metaphor. I love it. Yep. I love I agree. it. Well, speaking of being full and being happy, let's talk about Peace Like a River. Um, I mentioned the, my little quip at the beginning about how you both are people who read your fair share of <laughs> Mark Twain, which is a line, of course, from this section where uh, he, I believe it's in maybe the, the first chapter in this section, he says, uh, of course, I'd read as much as much Twain as the next boy. And it's where Davy is saying, 
You think you can get out of the house without rousting anybody? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, of course I could, he says. I'd read as much Twain as the next boy. So this is the section where Davy comes back into our lives, into their lives. And I was wondering, do you do, did you feel any kind of like, were there any, we, we obviously have the sort of like um, structural shift in terms of the characters are brought back in and the, the sort of journey to a place has clearly kind of come to an end for now. Now the journey might pick up again, but they're, they're at worst case at a sort of like Rivendell situation here, right? If they haven't found a new home. Mm-hmm. Did you feel any tonal shifts to go along with the sort of thematic shift that we get in this section now that Davey comes back? I wanted to kind of start there as we mm-hmm. dive into the section. Tim, what do you think about that? Did well, you I, it, recognize anything like that? It felt like the, the, I don't know how to say this. It became a little bit of a drama again. It, it's been a drama the whole huh. time, um, but it felt like the traction of especially by the end of the section, the traction of finding Davy and saving Davy now is of utmost importance. And it's always been very important, but the pace of the last two sections has been rather leisurely. And now we have no time to waste. So I don't know if it's a, I guess with that comes a tonal shift, but for me, it's more like the plot has now we've turned a little bit away from the budding romance between Mr. Land and Roxanne. We've turned away from this question of the federale, kind of like, is he a good guy or a bad guy? Now yeah. it's just, we've got to find Davy, and there's this really sketchy character that we were introduced to in this section. Is he as dangerous a guy as, as Ruben thinks he might be? And what's going to happen yeah. to his kind of like, live-in daughter who he's grooming to be his wife. Like, all that stuff is yeah. now... You just said something out loud that is a very weird thing to have to say out loud. Yeah, his I know. daughter who he's grooming to be his wife. Right, 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 right. That's it. But, like but it's, that you... part of, it's part of like what makes this thing... It's now turned into... I don't know if the cliffhanger is the right word, but it's turned into a drama where we've got to kind of like... Some rescuing needs to take place. Yeah, the sort of force of the plot is starting to generate some energy yeah. in, in throughout the pages. I like that you pointed out that um, we've kind of gotten past, or at least by the end of this section, we have gotten past the notion of Andresen being a putrid fed, you know, like a being a bad yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He gets more and more humanized as the section goes on. And, you know, partly because the father begins to sympathize or at least uh, empathize with him and, and see the see the good in him. And by the end of the section, you know, he... Uh, Ruben is debating within himself to what degree, um, <laughs> like whether he's an enemy, you know, he keeps calling himself the enemy. And then by the end of it, he has recognized that maybe the fed isn't the enemy anymore. And a sort of new enemy has emerged onto the scene, which is interesting because you don't often have that kind of a shift with 50 pages left in a book or to right towards the, the final chapters where the guy you thought maybe was the bad guy all along is all of a sudden maybe on your side and maybe yeah. you're after the same things, but there's a new guy who you have to sort of decide if he's a bad guy. You know, okay. I, a I had a question about this thing to do. Do you think that the change regarding Andreessen is, is a change just within kind of like the heart of Davy or is it, or did we, did something happen? I'm not asking that question very well. 
clearly, I think that Andreessen is not like nothing is like really changed profoundly in his character. He's been doing the same thing that he's been doing the whole time. Um, and so it's just a change within Davy's kind of perception of him. So huh. is is it that Davy now kind of believes what his dad has told him about that Andreessen is not a bad guy? Do you guy? mean Ruben? You mean Ruben? I'm sorry, Ruben, Ruben, Ruben. I'm so yeah. sorry. Um, has Ruben's heart changed regarding Mr. Andreessen? Or is it that like there's a new bad guy? The new bad guy is this Waltzer character, and there's kind of only room enough for one bad guy. And Andreessen, you know, Ruben doesn't think all of a sudden he's a good guy, but he's just not the primary threat. Do we, Heidi, do we have any sense of the actual character of Andreessen, Andreessen, however you want to say it? The, is he, and I don't mean like, do we have a sense of him as a character in terms of like the literary term, but it, but actually in terms of the character of the person himself, like, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Do I mean, they thought that maybe he was a threat, Swede and, well, the whole family did, I suppose. But now he's all, they don't think about him that way. So has, what do we actually know about this guy? Right. Well, Leif, anger is so good at drawing characters that any kind of fuzziness or missingness, so to speak, in a character is, I would say, is intentional on his part. And so Andreessen, to me, seems intentionally left a bit fuzzy. Like you don't have the same details about him that draw these incredible sketches of character in just a page or two like you'd get with, say, August or uh, the earlier lawyer who helped them out whose name I can't recall right now. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I huh. think that's intentional on Layfinger's part, and I think it serves a really good purpose because what we've discovered in the reading that we did this week is that the threat, you use the word threat, and I think that's the right word. The threat up to the reading this week was that Davy would get caught and go to jail and would be lost to them forever. Mm-hmm. This threat has now shifted that that's no longer the, that that's, that's a very minor threat compared to the one that we have now with like a real devil character who's obviously not just, you know, representative of justice per se, the way Anderson is, but is actually malevolent. Yeah. So that then makes Andreessen not no longer a threat and probably is in some ways threatened himself. And so that he's now another person looking for Davy that if he finds Davy, he's in danger. So that everything has changed with this reading. Everything has changed. And it was, I think, just an absolutely brilliant twist. It's a Western, it's fairy tale, it's biblical narrative. I mean, it's everything. Like it's, it was, I was on the edge of my seat. Hey, when you, were you guys surprised by the twist or did you see it coming that when that Ruben kind of perceived that Walzer wasn't worried about finding Andreessen because Walzer planned to kill him. Were you were you surprised to learn that, or did you kind of see it? Well, David's read it before. Do you remember yeah. the first time that you read it, David? Were you surprised? <clears throat> I don't remember, but yeah. I, you know, the funny thing is, I didn't remember. In it's been a 
you know, a couple of years. I didn't remember the exact sort of mechanism by which it was all, by which that sort of twist was revealed. Right. In terms of, in terms of the twist that Anderson, the guy that uh, Walter is going to go after Anderson. Um, and, and I was, I went back and reread the section a couple of times because I was trying to figure out like, what's the clue that became obvious to Ruben what was going on. And there's the line on 273 where it says, well, his dad says, Rube, that Anderson's a smart fellow, but he doesn't know one thing about winter in North Dakota. Mm-hmm. And then the next line is, a thought dropped from nowhere like a big snake. And then, and then that's like, that's the moment when he, <laughs> that's the moment when he realizes what's happening. Right. When, and, and it's, there is a sort of, um, lack of uh oh i mean it's got kind of a what deus ex machina thing going on there yeah (laughs) like wait what he just realized this how did he realize it and the book doesn't go to great pains at least to this point to tell us why he realized that and part of me you know i wonder if it it, there's something you know about it that's like his his dad you know like maybe the deus ex machina part is sort of the point (laughs) right um well, but Tim, you asked if you about being surprised. Does that mean that you were surprised that he re- that that Ruben realized it? Ruben saw it. Yeah, I was surprised, pleasantly surprised. I thought it was a great twist. And do you mean surprised? Like you were surprised that that Walter was going to do that, or that Ruben recognized it? I, both, I think. I, yeah. I think I was a little bit more surprised um, that Walter was going to do it, not because Walter like it's beyond him. Like he is the sort of character that would never do that sort of thing. He, it's sort of like his malevolence was, um, irritating and, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It was not as aggressive. It was sort of like a passive malevolence before that point. And then it became really active. If that makes any sort of sense, please don't hear yeah. me say yeah. like, "Hey, he was just kind of like an innocent kind of guy." No, not at all. Yeah, but he there was something sinister, but not malevolent. Yeah, maybe yeah. something like, yeah. like that. I mean, the uh, whole I, thing with the with the girl is like ma- like deep down malevolent. Yeah, like I am. Yeah. I I he's seemed evil to me from the minute that Ruben walked in that cabin. Like that, mm-hmm. the grooming of a child bride is just mm-hmm. preparation for lifelong sex slavery like that's not like oh maybe this is a bad guy like that's just plain evil like he's evil personified and but don't we get that Heidi a little bit later like after we we've kind of known him for a little while yeah maybe and I again I'm like but there's sulfur going in front of like the in front of the cabin and even the way that Davey you're you're right he it's it unfolds it yeah. it does unfold, but the full depth of it is, I think, pretty quickly seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, one thing I really like about what he does here with this and this the sort of sinister nature of both Jape and the place that he lives mm-hmm. is that it seems like Roxanne's or Roxana's home then is sort of surrounded by yes. all of these um, these sort of like hellish places so whether it's this the sulfurous broken down place where jape lives or it's the uh, fiery place that they had gone you know previously or it's the, just all the all the snow those sort of wasteland it makes her place that much more of a 
I mentioned Rivendell earlier, but that much more of a sort of Rivendell place. And it makes her that much more of a sort of, I know we we mentioned Beatrice last time and Mm -hmm. that's maybe a bit of a stretch, but it makes her that sort of character. You know, she's surrounded by all this sinister wilderness and, but her place is a sort of light in the the middle of that. Yeah. That's really well said, David. I think that's true. I was thinking about how um, this chapter is a sort of collision of we've had these collisions, not this, well, this section, not this chapter, because we read multiple chapters. We've had a lot of different like problems the characters have had to solve, you know, and there's decisions they've had to make. And there's been sort of ostensible bad guys, whether it's the two boys at the beginning or then Anderson or the the snow or whatever it is, the the journey itself. But here it does seem like we're getting these collisions of like these almost like collisions of worldviews, you know? Hmm. Um, and I was, I was wondering if that's where the sort of sinister nature of things, like the book feels more dangerous because of that. Does that make sense? David, can you say more about the clash of worldviews that you're saying? Yeah. Okay. So like in the past, Anderson's sort of like a, duty bound guy who is just, he has just, his duty tells him he has to do something that is harmful to someone that they love. So that's not really evil, right? Like the problem they have to solve is that they have to figure out what do you do when someone you love does something they shouldn't do and people who are in charge are after them. Mm. That's a complicated moral problem, but they were never like, they're never really in danger per se, you know, like nothing's, Nothing's really going to happen to Ruben, probably, right? Mm. Um, Aside from his asthma, probably, yeah. Right, and that, I think I actually think that's one of the reasons why the asthma has to be there because it adds a layer of um, difficulty, a layer of danger. You it's know, an obstacle, yeah, right. Yeah, I and, agree. You know, it has to. It kind of heightens the tension and the drama of of the first half of the book, especially. Right. But also, there's a lot of things we can talk about that. Um, but then here, when we get into Walter, um, his sinisterness is is sinister in a way that's different from Anderson as we've been saying he's actually evil and, and um, there's this part it's on 233 um, uh, okay they're about to eat and oh yeah he says um, let's see well at the bottom of 232 I lowered my head in panic not for a moment had I believed my narrative would be required so he is, they've just explained to Dave, to um, Ruben how they met, how Davy met Walter. And also the lateness of the hour suddenly landed on my shoulders. It had to be two in the morning. I guess I shut my eyes a moment. Ruben, what are you doing? I looked at him through twisting steam from the Dutch oven. He'd frozen as if detecting betrayal. Nothing, I said. Are you praying over this meal I've provided? No, Mr. Walter. I'd forgotten to pray, though you may believe I felt like doing so now. You are thanking God for the food, he said, when he did not give it to you. I gave it to you and did so freely. Thank me. I nodded. Call me Craven. You weren't there. Thank me then. I looked at Davy, who was watching his plate. I said, thank you, Mr. Walter. It looks like a good meal. And he goes on a little bit. And then there's the funny line where he says, I never had a predisposition towards pants wedding, but suddenly it seemed quite possible. <laughs> um, so even in like this really sinister moment, Leifanger drops in a little bit of humor, which I think is really... A psychologist could have fun with how people deal with trauma in the moment, right? Or at least in their memory. Um, and then at the end, 
he's talking about, they talk about the notion of being led. And um, he says, I, sus- I saw he suspected Davy that he might've given them away. I said, we didn't even mean to stop here. Our car broke down and we got snowed in. So no one led you here, he said. Well, the question was dismaying. Of course we'd been led. Why did everyone keep bringing this up? We'd been led by the bushel. And I was thinking about how, even just on this one page, at the top of the page, Walter says, God did not give you this food. I gave it to you. Thank me. And then at the bottom, there's this question of like the idea of being led. And and Davy and, and Ruben, sorry, saying, Of course we'd been led. And so in this moment, there's like these collisions of whatever Walter's world sort of yeah, 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 yeah. worldview is, which is sort of uh in some ways uh representative of a of a um a more sinister, more sick version of like I'm my own man, sort of American mm-hmm. independence, like the sort of the sort of make your own way type perspective. It's like a sick version of that. And then on the other hand, there's the version that's sort of the worldview that's sort of represented by Davy's father. And it's a it's a worldview of faith, right? Um and and being sensitive to those sorts of things. Whereas Walter's closing himself off. So in this moment we have this collision of those two things. And I think that that makes the the that brings to light the evilness and then the the thing is that makes it that adds a little bit of pathos to it is that davies it brought into the scene right he's caught in the middle and he won't look at either of them i think that's really important yes i, I love that little image that davies is just looking at his plate he won't he refuses to look at at ruben for support to support him and he also won't look at at walter all he can do is be stuck between them and look at his plate and so in the middle of this collision is these this, this character who Ruben loves, who we all kind of like hope the best for, and that to me is like the moment where the rest of the story seems to be setting on the path towards its mm-hmm. denouement, if you will. Mm-hmm. I I totally see what you're saying, and the way that Walter approaches Ruben's asthma, I think, is also kind of indicative of how he views the world. Mr. Land, by contrast, views Davies, excuse me, Ruben's asthma. There's a sort of um, appropriate fear and concern and humility. That's the better word about what's going on with Ruben. And, and Mr. Land asks Ruben, Hmm. Like yeah. what the treatment ought to be in some ways, you know, like even the doctor that kind of, I don't know the doctor was a quack that came in, but you know, he has these really strong opinions about the vinegar and the water, you know, that this doesn't work, but Mr. Land kind of goes back to Davy to verify if he thinks that it would work. So it's hard. I, why do I keep saying Davy goes back to Ruben? <laughs> um, I did have done it too. And asks Ruben if he thinks that it works and kind of like repeatedly, Mr. Land the treatment of the asthma is done with great humility and he wants to know what Ruben thinks is working. Whereas Walzer's approach, I mean, there was a while there. I was like, man, Ruben is going, he like his lungs are, are filling up and Walzer's going to teach him how to breathe. That was the thing yeah. that like, Oh my gosh, that made me so mad. It made me so mad on top of all the other things that I knew about Walzer. So that sort of, um, the lack of humility with regards to Ruben's illness is really telling. It says a lot about Walter. Mm. Right. Well, and I'm 
I'm seeing something else in the story, which is like Walter's a true psychopath. Like he's written perfectly, like perfectly for the personality disorder of psychopathy, which hunts down young, vulnerable victims to be groomed and brought into the lifestyle, right? So what we have then is before Anderson, who represents the law, like the biggest danger to Davy was the law. And now even Davy, who's this independent, you know, American hero, he's he did something in the name of justice and we all have an opinion about it, but he goes off into the sunset and finds his way, right? Like in, in some ways he's a heroic figure until we see him in this portion, in which case he's just as trapped as everybody else in the story. Yeah. And is trapped because of his own choices. And now his brother, Reuben, puts him in an impossible situation, either turn himself into the father who he suspects is going to turn, who he knows now is in cahoots with Anderson driving around. Davey knows that. And, and, and go to jail or else put Reuben in the position of bringing him to this psychopath and making him another victim or going to jail. Like, so the, everybody in this section is caught in these competing forces of loyalty, competing vows, impossible choices. How do you, how do you find your way in the midst of this tangle that's, mm-hmm. that's coming in? You use the word, David, I think it was you use the word denouement, of course, means untangling. So I know we're getting there, but, but life is anger is, is, I mean, we are all tangled up in this section and nobody knows what to do, including Davy, who's always been independent in the face of such bald evil as Jay Walter is, everybody is trapped. Uh, you know, one thing I, I like this, uh, the idea of the, the tangling, untangling, because I think it's really interesting the way Anger is doing this because he's creating, he both is tangling everyone up in terms of the choices they have to make, but he's doing that while also being very clear about who is honorable and yes. who is not and who is like dishonorable, I guess, or who is evil. Right. I think that's one of the reasons why that, you know, there, there's the scene where they're trying to talk about uh, where sweet and Ruben are talking about why their dad is sort of a different person all of a sudden. And then he goes to live in the airstream and sweet says, it's all about honor. And, mm. and Ruben says, you know, I, I, I was envious of her recognizing that. Um, cause the, cause the excuse that he was just ch- testing all the heaters would have worked on me. He says, and, so on the one hand, the, the choices they have to make become more complicated the more black and white the lines are between the antagonist and the protagonist. Totally or the groups agree. of people that are the antagonist and the protagonist. I mean, yes. even like the way he writes, like there's in the moment when he meets Walter and he passes out, because Walter's like forcing him to just overcome his breathing problem, you know? Mm-hmm. He's, I like that you said he's trying to groom like mm-hmm. a psychopath grooms young people because it is like he's trying to groom him into taking power and control and there's a sort of like dark lord sith vibe going on there like use the totally. force overcome your breathing right overcome mm-hmm. this breathing problem you can do it and then when he does he passes out and when he passes out he ha- he has this dream the dream that you mentioned earlier or last week at least comes back to him mm-hmm. and it it's not a coincidence like the book presenting this dream in connection with Walter is a very black and white choice by anger. Yep. So, so we're getting all these symbols and moments that make the lines ever more stark. 
while also making their choices that much more complicated. And so I think that's one of the great things that Enger manages to do in this book and why I think we get so... I think that's part of why, Tim, the drama gets ramped up a lot. Yeah. It feels like it's got... Like it's just the... the the, it's very. It's becoming much more aggressive. Like you have to keep turning the pages. You know, it's well, a lot less. The stakes are getting higher. The yeah. stakes are getting way higher. This is no longer a family drama about what if Davy goes to jail. Like this is, like, did he do the right thing in killing those boys? Like that's that's. It's almost. We've moved beyond that. Like that. Those are really good questions and complicated questions. But now we're talking about Walter owning this entire family and Ruben's health. I mean, he's clearly dying. So this, like the stakes are getting really, really high. And now Ruben is about to go out on this kind of like hunt when his lungs have been really in a dangerous spot. So this adds like a whole other complication to what we're about to read in the last section. Right. I'm a little bit nervous about the last section. Yeah. It's not just a question of, is there going to be a gunfight and someone's going to get caught in the crossfire right. or something? It was like, this person probably isn't capable of doing what he needs to do. Now. Yeah. Right. Right. It's not hey, just that there's danger. It's that it's about capacity. Right. Go ahead. Sorry. Is Davy tells Ruben that he's not scared of Walter. Right. I think kind of like earlier in this section, he says yeah. something, you know, he's like, he's not worried about him. Is that, do you believe Davy? Oh, such a good question. I wrote that in the margin. I put little question marks by that. Because now I think Davy's in danger. It bef- like I bef- the state of Davy's state is so precarious here. And before it's been that he's kind of outside the boundaries of the law and he's, you know, an outlaw, like a Western mm-hmm. outlaw. Um, you know, he's going to ride into town and shoot up the bad guys and take the girl and be the new sheriff in town like he's but now he is in very grave danger and it's almost more dangerous if he's not afraid of Walter mm-hmm. I actually mm-hmm. think it is more I've got on a, it is more dangerous if he's not afraid of Walter there's only a couple of reasons why he wouldn't be one he's he's becoming he's falling under his spell yeah or two he's foolhardy and doesn't see how dangerous he is yeah. or three is some kind of master plan and maybe that's it but the point is he should be afraid of him the only right response to that kind of evil is fear and and running in the opposite direction <laughs> and, yeah. and Davey being sheltered by it and so now i think and then you look at you know the counterpoint to davy is always is not Reuben and it's not Jape, it's his father, it's Jeremiah Land. He's the one on the other side. He's the one balancing and harmonizing Davy. And he's on the opposite pole. And he's the one joining Anderson and going to look for him. Mm-hmm. It's like this is like it's better for Davy to be in jail than to be with this whoever he's with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. I, I think that there is the, the moment that I said earlier where he won't look at either of them. Uh-huh. I think there is in that at least some vestiges of, I guess, fear maybe is the word. Like, you know that it, he maybe says he's not afraid and maybe fear is the wrong word. Maybe he wouldn't call it fear, but I don't think he, you know, I think he also recognizes Walter for what he is. 
Um, but maybe he doesn't realize the degree. Maybe he is to some degree falling under his spell. And so when he won't look at him, it's like he's he still has a little bit of resistance in him. Right. Well, and he can't spell. leave because of Sarah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And also, where is he going to go? Right. Yeah, where's he going to go? I kind of read it as Davy's kind of of the opinion that he's got this under control. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I mean, I, yeah. Or at least he's telling himself that. Right. Or at least, yeah, at least, I think he's, I think he really, really wants to believe that. Like, hey, you know, I killed two men. That's the kind of, you know, I'm capable of that sort of um, reckoning. Right. And this waltzer is just kind of a kook that lives out, you know, in the middle of the Badlands. I got this under control. And I think he definitely wants to believe that. Right. Well, the way we all do, right? When we have some kind of great temptation and we think we can handle it. Uh-huh. I'll just, uh-huh. you know, dabble in this for a little while. It's protecting yeah. me, right? Like there's, yeah. So it is self-deception. Like uh, Frodo with the ring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Yep. Well, and that's why the story is so great is because it doesn't let Davy be a romantic hero. It, it, and, and I really just love that. Yeah. I, it, you know, there's, there's all these references in this section to, um, Butch Cassidy. Uh-huh. And, uh, I love that because it, it, it keeps coming back to the, the idea of legends and myth and, and the gray area in legends and myths. And in some way right. the, the story reads like, I was thinking a lot about how it reads like it's being told orally, not written down. Whereas Sweet is this great writer. The book has all these marks, these like, markers in it of an oral of a story that could be told orally and uh and and it's and that i think plays into this kind of like this book itself could be sort of a legend that's passed down there's all mm. these these things that are barely believable that you would get in in stories where barely believable things are constantly happening especially in all kinds of like americana i don't remember what i was i, I, I think was also that. The Butch Cassidy story about what happens isn't the story that we get about Butch Cassidy kind of what happens to him after he retires from his outlawry from his outlawry. It, yeah, yeah, right. And he kind of becomes a redeemed citizen in some way, becomes this church-going man. And I'm I'm yeah, wondering if true. we are being if this is the story of Davy, not just that. Swede wants us that that Swede wants to believe that, but maybe this is kind of what's going to happen with Davy. A sort of foreshadowing. Yeah, I think at least thematically, I think by offering that possibility, it creates more tension, more drama, yeah. more, more yeah. possibility. So that if it does or doesn't happen, there's payoff one way or the other. Right. So Tim, a little bit ago, you mentioned the idea of I think it was you, Tim. You mentioned the idea of control, right? that maybe he feels like he has everything under control. Davey yeah. does. Was that, yeah. was that you? Yeah. I hadn't thought of this before, before you said that, but it seems like a lot of this book is about the concept of control. And maybe, maybe on the one hand, every book is about the concept of like that, that sort of the notion of problem solving or problems or obstacles or whatever is inherently a question of control. Mm. And I've never thought about narratives that way before. Um, that, that characters are just trying to make sure that they have or or acquire some kind of control over a situation or they're trying to respond to the fact that they don't have control over the situation. Maybe that's what it is, but it seems like this book in particular is about the theme of control. So right. Anderson 
is trying to control the family to help him figure things out. Um, the the boys at the beginning are out of control, and David then takes control of the situation. Um, they can't control, you know. People are always trying to control his lungs. There's all these. He's being told by by Walter, control your lungs, be a man, right? Essentially, that's what he's saying. And his father's trying to come up with all these remedies that will control the problem, keep it from getting worse. When he gets when when Jeremiah Lane gets pneumonia, they're trying to control the symptoms and keep them from getting worse. Um, and there's all these there's all these different questions of how, how do you wrangle, to use the Western metaphor a horse that's just so wild that you can't control it, that, that a corral mm. doesn't keep it. It seems to be an ongoing theme in this book. Do you, do you buy that? And can I add one more? I mean, is, yeah. can we say that Swede is trying to... Um, oh, yeah. She's yeah. trying to control the meaning of what's happening with them by sort of shopping different potential narratives to what yeah, is going yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. And maybe Man. in some way she's trying to control her own heart by doing that. Yeah, right. Maybe so. I think it's brilliant. I think that totally works. Which is why, as you pointed out earlier, David, about the asthma and how important that is. It really wouldn't be the same story without the asthma. And and your the theory you're propounding you're proposing. The theory you're proposing right now. I do like is, the idea of a propounding, though. I know. I, I, am, I talk good. That's I, am. Uh, I, I got a few yeah, good words. That's right. Um, that it, it covers that. This kind of continual wrestling for control, even of very survival. Yeah. Which, okay, so then what does that tell us about Jeremiah Land? Because is he sort of by his faithfulness releasing control is that what makes him different well while i was laying in bed in a feverish mess the other day i was thinking <laughs> about um i was thinking about the book and about how air is so important because ruben is struggling for air all the time and it was He's struggling to control his own survival all the time and he can't. Um, and other people attempt to do it for him, but they can't. Not even Jeremiah Land can. Um, and, but Jeremiah Land was freed from his control, in a sense, by being picked up by a gust of air. Right? Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. That was his when he was picked up by the tornado or whatever. Yeah. It was a tornado, yeah. right? Yeah. And then and then it's while he's up floating in the air completely out of control. This is good because there's something like this happens in this section. Then he realizes that he's not in control and then he lives the rest of his life with this open-handed generosity and mercy towards everything that he encounters. Yeah. It's so much so, and I think this is where I struggled so much with, with Jeremiah Land and is that he doesn't, because I'm a controlling person, right? So I read this story and I'm like, tell your kids how to live. (laughs) Tell them what to do. Like they are completely out of control and you were not telling them what to do. Mm. 
And you're living this very virtuous life, Mr. Land, but you're not telling them what to do with their confusing life. And now I'm like, oh, <laughs> like maybe that's kind of the whole point. Huh. I'm so glad that you mentioned the tornado as breath because I hadn't thought of that. But then during this section, right at the very end, we get another sort of uh, breath in the form of a uh, natural occurrence. On 270, it says, no word arrived from Anderson that day or the next. What did arrive was a northwest wind that sang against the house. In the Dakotas, it needn't snow to blizzard. The wind Hmm. came low and fast, peeling the drifts. And then he... um, it talks about it was ground wind, a ground blizzard. Picture a storm to match any in wildness, but only eight feet high. Which then that has to call back the earlier storm. Any storm, it says, but only eight feet high, which is like the opposite of the storm that is way up in the sky that lifts the father. Um, and it talks about like how um, in the middle of the storm, Roxanna's red birdhouse was on a stilting pole and above the storm, it was actually sunny. We could see the gleaming tin dome of a neighbor siloed miles away and the wind lasted two days. And then we get the final part of this chapter where he realizes what's going on with, uh, uh, Walter. I'm not Anderson. Mm. So maybe, maybe these sort of natural breathings, <laughs> if, you, right. if you will, are, you know, representative of, of, like releasing control or some sort of clarity related to that or something. Right. Or maybe that's reading too much into it. No, I think that that's part of it. Like that the extravagance of breath available to every other character other than Ruben, who's continually being closed in and is by far the most pressured character in the story other than Davy. Like he's the one, he's the witness. He has all of these, he, he knows both sides of this story and does not know what to do mm. at this point. It's all closing in on him. Oh, this is so good because at the end of the, like the next page that I read, he then has this conversation. You know, he's all worried about Davy. And so he says to Swede, you know, how long do you think you'd survive in this kind of a wind? And, mm-hmm. and then she tells him all these stories about like the college boys from Wyoming and who took off their clothes because they were actually felt warm and then they froze to death. And so he, she has all these sort of, things that she tells him and then at the end it says um sitting by sweet as she read silently on the couch i counted six of my breaths my breaths to each of hers each of hers what i wanted was a great big inhale or failing that a little piece i ventured out to the airstream and so the airstream yeah oh yeah wow that is that is kind of remarkable it does feel like we kind of stumbled. Maybe no, I shouldn't say stumbled. David saw something I did not see. Uh, well, I just think it's funny because on the one hand, it's one of those like using the airstream as this part of the story <laughs> is is like so obvious. Yeah. But then it's also such a real thing that you don't until you realize it. Like it doesn't feel obvious, right? I mean, lots of people probably thought, "Oh, airstream, that that's obvious." But then a lot of people probably didn't think about it at all because it I didn't think about it at just all. Just a thing. It's I didn't think about it at of, all. Yeah, it's a real concrete. It's an actual brand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not like he made up a character's name to me, like, like you know, to be super obvious. But it's obvious at the same time. <laughs> but but the the kind of concept of her only like her breathing six times for his one breath. 
is a uh, is very it's meaningful you know does the it, it does sort of speak to like he's constantly feeling behind or trapped like he doesn't have like what's the, the things that are possible to other people aren't possible to him right right makes it sort of sad i also wonder if the um this kind of thematic thematic element of the wind or or blowing i mean the john 3 what does jesus compare like the spirit to it's the wind that blows right it goes where it wants to you hear the sound of it um but you don't know where it's going you don't know where it's coming from so is everyone who is born of the spirit and that seems like it seems like Mr. Land more than anybody else. He's, he's, I mean, he's enigmatic in some way, but I don't think he's deliberately shrouded by anger. I think he's just, he's one who's born of the spirit. Right. Which is mysterious to what is less holy people who still want to take control of everything. Me. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> But so okay, so what does that tell us? Yourself, Heidi. <laughs> what does it mean though, metaphorically or otherwise, analogously or otherwise, about the state of Reuben's soul then? Right. If he is short of breath and his father is endowed with this breath, but then there's this inability for the father to pass that breath on to right. his son. Like am I, are we is is it too much to start asking these sort of these sort of questions? Or no, that's my, that's been my, all my question, the entire novel, which is how, how is this child going to be saved? This is not about Davy. It's about Reuben. How like, is he is, going to be given the breath? Yes. Like he's, and that, so that, that's where I'm like, oh, I have this theory about the end of the story, but that, that this, this is a story about Davy, but the central character, the witness character is a child who can't actually survive mm. in the world. And that and 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 the pressures on this child are bearing down so much that he no longer can catch his breath. Mm. It's an objective correlative to his soul. I really think that's true. And and we're coming, I think, to a breaking point for him. Is it is it an objective correlative to every soul? Probably, yes. Or maybe to the concept of, you know, coming of age. Hmm. Like if this is say a buildings Roman or however you choose to pronounce a word that no one knows how to pronounce. Is it, (laughs) is it, is that sort of just like, is it a sort of meta discourse, a meta narrative on the nature of a coming of age story? And then like a coming of age story is learning is either, is either getting at the end of a coming of age story or a buildings Roman, you're either going to, have been given the breath to live or the breath is going to be gone and you're either not going to live or you're going to be living a different way. Like, Right. Well, and it's a perfect, it's a perfect metaphor. Like it's perfect I, because he can't catch his breath on his own. And that's, that's what makes Chape Waltzer such an evil person. Right. Like while he was talking to him about the stars, like, I was so creeped out. It yeah, reminded yeah. me so much of um, of that hideous strength and like the systematic destruction of Mark Stoddard's humanity throughout that novel. 
by NICE, the the um, organization. Yeah, yeah. Jake's talking about the, the, the C.S. Lewis novel. Yes, this this distortion of or inversion of education. Like you can tell that Jay Walter is like, I'll take this young boy under my wing and I will teach him my ways. And that is, I mean, that that's one possible future for Ruben and for Davy. Why do you think Davy takes Ruben there in the first place? I was thinking a lot about that because it's sort of off stage. It happens off stage that he decides to do that. Ostensibly, it's because Reuben threatens to tell Jeremiah Land that he saw Davy. But I don't know if that's compelling enough because Davy could just then disappear and not yeah. come back. All right. That's that's the thing. Like Davy could just go back to the woods. What do you think, Tim? Why does he well, choose I, to bring him there? My question would be slightly different. Why does he allow himself to be seen by Reuben? Because it seems like once that yeah, happens. Yeah. That's true then it's a distinct possibility that he's going to have to take action with regards to Ruben and explain himself. And maybe it's an accident. You know, maybe he just wanted to see his family and Ruben happened to catch a glimpse of him. But I I don't know. I don't know. But do you think he brings him there because Walter says you have to bring him here? Maybe, maybe because Davey knows that, that Ruben is, that Ruben is easily influenced. He saw him on the witness stand. So, uh, yeah. you know, like if it, it, it's an odd decision unless he was told to do it or unless he wanted to do it. Yeah. Man, that's yeah. my estimation huh. of Davy. If he said yes to Walzer, my estimation of my estimation of Davy drops pretty significantly. So what do you think? Do you think he wanted to then? I don't think he wanted to. I think, again, I'm locating the decision for Davey in either choosing to, in choosing to be seen. And Mm -hmm. I think he kind of got talked into taking Ruben to the place where Davy's been hiding out. And and so did Davy intentionally get seen? I kind of think so. And I just think because he wanted to be seen. Yeah. Because he misses his brother and he misses his family. And yeah. then I think it kind of falls like dominoes after that. I I, I have a hard time believing that Davy would even if Davy is not aware of the sort of um this sort of grotesque demonic that's lurking behind or within Walzer, even if he's ignorant of that, I would think like on some sort of a subconscious level, I, I, I don't know, like bringing Davy into that sort of danger and having Davy, excuse me, bringing Ruben toward <laughs> that sort of danger seems, I don't think that Davy would do that. I might be wrong. But I don't think that Davy would do that. So that to me either means, I think it means that he doesn't think that Walter is that big of a threat yet. I think he thinks he's like a pretty bad guy, but I think Davy thinks he's got it under control. That's my read. So he's not afraid to bring Ruben to Walter because Davy's got it under control. I'd be curious to ask Mr. Anger that question. Mm -hmm. Heidi, do you think, do you think that, what do you think? I I mean, if I'm being honest, I don't think there's a strong enough 
I, I don't think the novel gives us a strong enough motive that, so yeah. my particular take is, is that a criticism or you think that it's actively, it doesn't, it's not what the novel is. No, no, no. It's a bit of a criticism. I think this is a weak point in the novel, but there may, might be something I've missed. But you think, so well, can I take a step back to clarify? Are we, we're talking about why does he bring, are we talking about why he allows himself to be seen Heidi or, or why he brings Davy back to Walter? Why he brings Davy back to Walter. Good question. Okay. Yeah. I don't think the novel gives us a strong enough reason considering Davy's strength of character. So I think Tim's right. It's either that he doesn't know how evil Walter is, but that that doesn't seem I don't I don't know no knowing Sarah's presence and that Davy knows what Sarah's there for, that seems really and that he would bring in his brother there seems so Heidi, I mean, Heidi, what if he, again, this is taking like my read on it. What if he thinks I got this under control and I'm going to rescue Sarah? I'm not even worried about the, like my ability to rescue Sarah. I'm yeah. going to. Maybe, maybe just pride on Davis' yeah. part, overreaching, like a, a dismissal. Um, but he went to such lengths to protect his family already that it seems uncharacteristic for him to bring Ruben there. Yeah. So that, that to me is like, I, as I was reading it, I'm, I kept thinking, I don't know if anger has given us a strong enough motivation on, on Davy's side, knowing what we know about Davy's strength of character. But mm-hmm. like I said, I might've missed something or there might be, be um, something that, you know, that I'm, I'm not seeing about Davy. Well, let me ask you this. You say knowing Davy's strength of character, so then, you know, the question, the uh, follow-up is, what do we know about Davy's strength of character? Um, I think that his protection of his family, that he's gone to such great lengths to do that, his independence, um, and, his, Maybe- and he's not easily manipulated, and he does know that Reuben is easily influenced. So- well, maybe, maybe the one of the things to consider then is that I've, I've never thought about this before, but what if the, what if the novel is sort of telling us that the way we feel about Davy is similar to the way Ruben feels about Davy and maybe neither of us should have felt the way we do. Right. Like, and maybe maybe he true. doesn't, maybe uh. he didn't shoot the two boys to protect his family. Maybe he shot them because he was angry. Like it was much, maybe it wasn't about justice and it was more about hate or like a, 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 you know, a drifting towards hate. Sure. Mm -hmm. And maybe he's under Walzer's influence more than we know. And then Ruben's presence there being in danger. Maybe he kind of brings him here to, to show him off. Look what I found. And then, and then Japes, Jape Walzer's cruelty and manipulation of Ruben changes Davy's mind. One thing I was wondering is let's like like let's assume that Davy's not kind of a bad guy. We'll just put it that way. I know it's overly simplistic, but let's put it that way. Yeah, um, I don't think he's a bad guy. Um I don't mean like a bad guy like in the technical term. Right. I, I know. But I just mean like maybe he's not I don't know. I think that he's I don't think he's as noble as the first part of the book wants you to think because I think that the right. first part of the book is from Ruben's perspective and Ruben's perspective is is looking up to his older brother. Yeah. It's sort of changing. Um, so we, by the end of this section, 
there's this question of Anderson is go- that that Walter's going to kill Anderson that, that 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 he's luring him sort of into a trap and that's what Ruben realizes. What if what Davy's trying to do is is um show that Ruben and the family is not a threat and so then Walter doesn't need to kill them or go after them to preserve his own independence. Like what if he's trying to say, I mean, on the one hand, it's like inviting him the boy into the belly of the beast, but also maybe he, he believes in Ruben enough, unlike everybody else, except Jeremiah, that he can prove that they're, that they're not actually a threat to Walter. Well, I think that Ruben's um, malleability, if that's a word, <laughs> lends itself to that theory for sure. Like certainly, but the risk then is just the practical one of Ruben's malleability combined with the fact that now Ruben knows the way, the actual geography of the cabin. So that actually puts them in more of danger, hmm. right? So then maybe he's using, yeah, I mean, I, th- I, 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 you said it's a, man, the more I think about it, I actually think that the questions of his motivation, especially at this point in the novel, like as you're reading it, being not being sure why he does what he does. I actually think it might be a, like a strength in complicating strength. the novel. Yeah. Like I don't, Tim, do you think it's a flaw that if we don't know why the motive, like why Davy's motivations are what they are, it is, do you feel like that's a flaw like Heidi, Heidi was suggesting? I, I tend to, and maybe we'll get to the end and we'll know it in which right. case, you know, it would be not a flaw, but you know, like we can all look back on this conversation, have a good laugh. Uh, right, 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 right. But yeah, I do think it's a, it's a, very significant decision to bring mm-hmm. to bring Ruben kind of into the clutches of Walter, especially the more that we get to know Walter, the more we kind of realize, wait, why did you bring your like eleven year old asthmatic brother? Well, notice that later on to this guy when he brings him right. back, he only brings him back when Walter's gone. Right, right. Even still, even still, I so, think I guess what I'm saying is maybe he recognizes, oh that's not a great idea anymore. And so then he adjusts and then he didn't realize it at the beginning, the first time. That's that's a possibility, but I'm kind of with Heidi. I think it's a shortcoming. I think it needs, I think it needs to be explained by the end of the book. Is that because you feel a dissonance? (sighs) I I don't mean to like probe here. I'm just curious. I'm just trying to, I guess it's just interesting to me how books work on people. You know, like what do people, we all kind of have our own responses to stuff. It's like, why, why does a book, why do you why do you think you respond to a book this way or whatever? I, I don't know that it's a dissonance. It's just such a significant decision. And it's a decision that is is, I think as Heidi has said, lacking for me, lacking an adequate motivation or a clear motivation. Um it's, it's like maybe this is overstating it, but I'll do it for the sake of the point. If Davy brought Reuben to the edge of a cliff in a windstorm and like made him put his toes over the cliff in the windstorm. And we don't know the reason why Davy did that. We're kind of like, okay, we got to have an explanation for putting, for putting Ruben in that level of danger. We've got to have an explanation. Yeah. And if we don't get one, yeah, I think it's a shortcoming in the book, but I'm totally willing. I think we're all willing to say, okay, let's see how it plays out. Right. Huh? Well, before we go, I'm so curious. Sometimes David will do. David will do. Huh? 
huh. And having the only one who's read the book. I know. Well, you hear the intake of breath and you're like, this could be a comment. <laughs> or Well, you, I mean, if I, I reveal my motivations, then I, I'm not, you know. Yeah, I can't reveal. Yeah, I'm not. No, I, right, 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 right. We don't mean to probe. There needs to be a. There needs to be a little bit of. You know, I. I need to be somewhat mysterious. Otherwise, yes. like you know, I become too one. I become too one dimensional as a character. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of uh, un, non one dimensional characters, I do want to talk about Roxana and and the budding romance at the in the middle of this section. And I want some. I want to hear from you, from both of you. Which what what you think about this. Um, and I don't want to just say, what do you think about this? So I do want to um, look at a specific scene and I want to talk about it. Um, it is um, the one that ends on 242. So let's start on 240 and let's end the show with this, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, Heidi, are you up for doing a little bit of reading? Absolutely. Okay. At the bottom of 240, there's a new section that starts. And just for some context, he has been not feeling well and the father's been gone and Roxanne has taken care of him and she gives him the cocoa. We'll offer some cocoa and he says no. And she says, um, we'll whip that fever. She, and she uses the words better, darling, ask the question. And then um, that, meant, that means a great deal to him. And then that's where we begin here. So 240 where it says sleep that day. Can you read, okay. um, read two paragraphs and then Tim, you want to pick it up uh, with I'll admit yeah. 41. Cool. All right. Take it away. Sleep that day was a warm pool into which I dove and stayed, sporadically lifting my head to sense the world. Roxana entered with a bowl of beef broth and later with buttered saltines. Swedes stood by the bed a few times, waiting for me to open my eyes, which I didn't. Once I surfaced to the rattle of papers and found her on a chair next to the bed, pretending to rub out some words on a page. Her regret at my awakening was also counterfeit. She happened to be waist deep in a new sundown episode. Barely. You guys, I just, I just want to stop you there, like I would do with my students, because I, <laughs> I, I, I am. This paragraph excites me so much. <laughs> the one that's coming? No, the one that we just read. The one that she yeah. just read. Like the, I mean, it's like the way he sticks to his metaphor. Yeah, is so so nice. <laughs> like. <laughs> It's a warm pool into which he doves, he dove and stayed. And then the writer just stays in that pool too, because we get, um, how it says, um, surface, he surfaced to the rattle of papers and waist says, deep. Yeah. Waist deep. Like yeah. all the different ways that he sticks to that are so, are so nice, but they're not overbearing. So he sticks to his metaphor without like crushing us on the head with it, which I think takes, um, some, some skill. Anyway, carry on. I like this next sentence a lot, by the way. <laughs> Barely conscious, I listened oh, yeah. like oh, some yeah. drunken editor. <laughs> All editors are drunk, let's just be clear. <laughs> Metaphorically. <laughs> That's so great. You'll recall how Sonny started as ramrod lawman, then found himself compelled to questionable action, and had lately grown into the best of misunderstood outlaws. This new chapter placed him in an undiscovered valley high in the mountains, a snakeless Eden and matchless hideout. Its meadows were the rippled green of the resting sea, fed by springs and by a vigorous brook twisting down to a pool with a floor of polished stones. Moreover, this valley had but one entrance, a steep slot through canyon walls, which one tucked stick... Wow. 
Let me say that again. A steep slot through canyon walls, <laughs> which one tucked stick of dynamite could obliterate forever. Yes, Sonny owned a stick. In fact, he had tucked it already, back in a crevice away from rain. Should trouble threaten, he could merely strike a match and seal himself in paradise forever. I'll admit that even in my groggy state, this seemed a lot like Lassiter's condition in Riders of the Purple Sage. Swede didn't mind the observation. She said other writers had told this story also, and that not even Zane Grey was the first. She said... It was such a true story, it needed recurrent tellings so as not to fall out of circulation completely. She asked whether it would be wrong for someone to write a story already uh, about pirate gold buried under an X since Mr. Stevenson had already done it. Of course not. Well, secret valleys with sealable entrances were just the same, Sweet said. Places and things were so real in the world they were often disbelieved. Sonny, anyhow, was holed up in this pretty gorge with the dynamite placed. He hadn't set it off because, first, he had wanted his wife up there with him. I was a little bewildered about the wife business since Sonny's undefined connections to various past ladies, but boy, I was tired. I didn't bring it up. In fact, at roughly this point, I drifted off again. When finally I woke of my own doing, the blanket over the west-facing window was shot with orange pinpricks. The day was over, the fever whipped, and no one had come to steal my breath. I washed up and went downstairs, sticking out my chest like Horatius. Keep going, David. Yeah, but we could spend a lot of time thinking about why he um, mentions Horatius so here. And also, I like that at the end of the section, once he's feeling better, he washes up, which calls back to the, con- to the idea of the warm pool mm. at the beginning of the section. And then the idea of the sea and the springs and the brook, which is used in the metaphor from her story. I, all of and this is so, so tight. Him. Yes. Uh, go, yeah, read, a, read another paragraph. How quickly I'd come to expect Roxanne to make a big deal of me, and how kind she was not to disappoint. At my appearance, she smiled, pressed her palm against my forehead, a sensation I enjoyed, remarked on my sturdy constitution to recover so fast, and introduced me to a bowl of vegetable soup. <laughs> Sweet ate too, while Roxana worked in the kitchen beside us, thumping up crust for a pie. Things were close to perfect. I'll pick it up there. When's dad coming home? I asked. This evening, Roxana said, checking the clock. He called earlier. He's sure anxious to see you both. How'd it go with Mr. Anderson? He didn't say much. I guess that's no big news. I guess there's no big news. She rolled out that crust in about six strokes and laid it across a metal pan. So they didn't find Davy? Not as of this morning. Where do you suppose he is? It was a little mean, my persisting this way. I only asked because I knew the answer and felt smug knowing it. Maybe it was my small-hearted revenge against Dad, my way of suggesting he hadn't been led to go off with putrid after all. Then Roxana turned to me with an encouraging smile, and I saw that she was scared for Davy. Scared for him, though she'd never met him. And instead of smug, I only felt underhanded. We have to be steadfast, she said now. We have to have faith, you two. That's all. You see... She'd begun to use dad's language. You notice something like that. And watching her, I noticed too, she was wearing earrings, little gold hoops. And then while in no way impatient, she seemed eager to get the pie in the oven and her hands washed and the countertop clean where she'd rolled out the crust. Swede had been eating in an unusual quiet. Out of nowhere, she said, if dad says we have to go home, I'm not going to let him. Neither am I, Roxana replied. I looked at her quick, but she was scrubbing the counter, all business and not about to meet my eye. 
so then this section leads into uh into um the section where he comes back and we get all this stuff about their relationship and how he goes outside and how she starts wearing perfume which by the way is also a liquid and um how when the, the next section when he gets back his father's expression is curiously buoyant and alien which is a phrase we could also spend a long time talking about but what i want to know from you is you were talking about motivations earlier and we were questioning whether there's enough motivation for Davy's choices. Is there enough motivation for this relationship or is there enough context or seeds planted or whatever phrase you want to use? Is there enough of that to make sense of this relationship between Roxana and Jeremiah land? Heidi, I will turn to you first with that. I think, yes, I think. Great. Because- Tim. Yeah, that's all. <laughs> no, just, just kidding. <laughs> yep. Go, go ahead. Well, she is a, she's lonely and she's been abandoned or she has driven off this man who somehow done her wrong. And, right. um, and then this family that needs her and is in danger and has like a really good available man who is kind and gentle to her. And I mean, all of this, I I absolutely understand how she has become invested in this family and is starting to fall in love with this man. And her helpful life-giving presence is bringing them all back to life, including Jeremiah Land. Mm. So yeah, I think Mm. everything about it has um, plenty of motivation. Tim, do you think it changes her character that earlier on she's this sort of like, you know, I mean, there are these even these masculine images used with her. Um, she's this sort of tough character mm-hmm. um, who kicks the, this other dude out of her house, as Heidi mm-hmm. said. And then here, steadily, everything sort of begins to change and she's got a much more per- maternal persona. Does that, does that work for you? Yeah, I think it does. I think it does. I think like when she puts on the dress, when... Um, Mr. Land is coming home. That to me is like this kind of like pivot moment that she's willing to let go of being kind of, uh, how would you describe it? She's oh, willing like to relinquish a little bit of what's that. She's like and allowing some warmness to come. Yeah. 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 Her, she's allowing some warmness. Guard down. Right. Right. And I, I think that to me is like maybe the moment that we see this different aspect of her character. And, and also I, I just have sort of assumed that there are offstage conversations happening between sure. her yeah. Yeah. and Mr. Lane. And that's kind of where a lot of the romance has been budding, yeah. percolating. And uh, you know, the, the story's from the perspective of a little kid. So, so who, who's only going to be privy to so much of it. And so when I imagine that for little children who's, who have a parent who, and I know he's not really little, but he's still a child. Um, right. Who's who have a parent who then gets into a relationship? The mystery of that is probably pretty confounding. Yeah. Um, I you know that's pr- I think he probably captures that pretty well. One thing I really like is the way the the uh, the scenes where he he goes into the airstream and every time he comes into the house he doesn't just sort of wander in like he's a friend. You know, he, he makes, there's a formality about it. He brings a flower, he knocks on the door, he wears a suit. And mm-hmm. in some ways it seems like he's recognizing this is a character or a person, I guess, in Roxana who has been through 
trauma, who has had to endure things, who, who I have to earn her trust, you know? I have to, so every time I go to the door in a romantic sort of way, every time I engage with her in a sort of romantic way, I'm asking her to trust me. And so he takes, he takes a formal approach, not just because he's a formal sort of a guy, but because he recognizes that every time he does something like that, he's asking her to let her guard down a little bit. And when she opens the door, every time she does that, she's removing a barrier between them. And to, to, re, to remove a barrier between them is to inherently say, I trust you. I'm going to reveal something more of myself. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to, you know, and every, and as the novel goes on, even by the end of this section, bit by bit by bit, she has removed the hardened exterior, right? She, and she has made herself um, less sort of tough. And, yeah. you know, the door sort of seems to represent that, you know, in a, in a really interesting way, but it's all wrapped up in character too. So he, he does all these rep- things that are, Life Anger does all these things that are rep- representing something about character, but they're all wrapped up in what characters would actually do. Like it doesn't feel mm. wrong that a character like Jeremiah Land, who can walk on the air, would go live in the airstream and then knock on the door wearing a suit every day. Like it feels <laughs> consistent with him, just yeah. as it feels consistent that she would let her guard down in this way. It doesn't happen overnight. The book slowly reveals that. And like, again, there's a lot of skill in, in the characters as you, you were talking about how Heidi, you were talking about how he gets character. Like he gets how to yes. reveal character. I think that's a great example of it. I agree. Um, before we go, either of you want to offer a passage that you really liked or, or a moment or anything else that you want to, you want to add? Heidi, I'll let you go first. I loved the whole conversation about honor. Oh, darn. That's what I was going to say. Heidi. Well, we've been going a while. Let's both let's, let's use that as both yeah. passage and then yeah. let's talk about it. What page is it? Same I couldn't find know. it either. Um, it's um, on two, uh, um, two to 44. 44. I had it marked, but then I had to take out my bookmark to find one of the other passages we read. Yeah. So it's that night he, well, yeah. So the passage at the beginning of this section is fascinating. And we can talk about that if you want also. But so then it says that night he goes up to pack his clothes and he goes out there and then he asks Swede, Ruben asks Swede, why is he doing that? And that's on 244. Right. Yep. Um, we're not moving out there. Only dad, she said. How come he is? It's for honor. She said, it's a declaration you like to hear about your own father. And I was pleased by the confident way she said it. Oh, good. (laughs) He's still going to come in the house in the daytime, but he's going to sleep out there. There seemed to be something going unsaid here, though I didn't know how to reach whatever it was. I had already asked the only question, how come, and had my answer. (laughs) Swede said, he told me he wants to make sure the heater's working in the trailer. Remember that night it got so cold? Uh-huh. But it's really just for honor. She was pretty proud to have figured this out. I was proud of her too. I would have believed the heater story for sure. <laughs> I love that. It raised a question though. Don't you think we should move out there with him then? Anyway, I'm not going to go past that. But the I just it's hilarious. It's sweet. It speaks again to Ruben's kind of innocence darling <laughs> yeah. and also frustrating level of dense innocence um <laughs> and swedes just love of honor and how black and white she is about the world yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um and <laughs> to his character i mean it's just it's funny and sweet and perfect i loved it 
I was laughing because I was reading about how Leifanger wrote this book for his kids, like kind of to amuse them. And that there are all these, they, they recommended, like they came up with all kinds of ideas, much like the conversations between Swede and, and Ruben where she's asking Ruben for help. But then I was thinking about this section and that line about there's so much that's going unsaid and how yeah. he probably was like, yeah, you know, they won't get the, some of the backdrop of what's going on there about why he would go out to, you know, not, he wouldn't stay in the house, but he's just going to leave it unsaid and have a little, you know, wink, wink in there. I, it's, it's pretty funny. I was just it imagining him sweet. laughing, laughing and trying to do that within a way that's not going to get his kids asking questions. Mm. <laughs> Tim, what, what did you like about this passage? I just like it. I like the whole, I like what Jeremiah Land did. You know, like, I don't know. I just like the action that he made yeah. that choice. The decisiveness of it, you mean? Yeah, and that, like, something changed in his relationship to Roxanne, so he deliberately put this kind of, I don't want to use the word barrier, but I'm just not smart enough to think something else, barrier of honor between them by moving out. Right. But it's not a barrier that's like a wall you have to scale. It's a barrier that she makes the choice to open. Like he gives yeah. her the choice to let him in. It's not like yeah. a Romeo and Juliet barrier where he has to climb to the top of the wall and scale it. Yeah, window. right, right. It's like the barrier is one that is, it's a barrier of decision. Like he's letting her decide, you know? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I love the little passage at the top of that page where it says that um, then dad's, dad's hand let go and just for a moment encircled Roxana's waist. He was laughing, and when he turned to us, he'd never appeared stronger or more like himself or more capable of stepping up to what might be required. Um, yeah, and then we get, and then that's the moment in the book where he decides to go live outside. Mm. Like in terms of in terms of the way the narrative is structured, maybe that wasn't the moment when he decided, but after that, he decides to do it. And there's something right. transforming. Like she is trans, she and their relationship is actually transforming him, at least in right. the eyes of his son, and thus in the eyes of the novel. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Any final thoughts on anything else? None from me. We went almost an hour and a half today, so I guess this was a reasonably so interesting much to section. Talk about. Well, for next week, we are going to be talking about the ending, the final, uh, the final what, thirty-seven, thirty-eight pages, or something like that. And then I'm a little the, apprehensive. I'll admit it. I don't scared. I you're have, scared. Well, I have, and I have. I, an expectation and I can't tell if I hope I'm right or not. So I'll let you know next week. That, <laughs> yeah. You can't tell if you, you, like, you can't, you can't understand yourself enough to tell if, if you want to be right. Maybe that's what I mean. That felt confusing, but yeah, that's probably it. I, I, I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't say something in a confusing way. So I think it's you. <laughs> it's probably me. This is a me problem. <laughs> so I'm excited. I'm, I've really loved this book. So Okay, yeah. let's here. I want to hear, Tim. What do you hope happens? Oof. Oh gosh, this is going to sound strange. I hope that Anderson is successful in apprehending Davy. That Davy is safe. That, um, gosh, I do not have benevolent thoughts toward Walzer. I hope he goes down. I'll just leave that ambiguous enough. I kind of hope that Sarah, I hope that um, Jeremiah Land and Roxanne get married. I hope that Sarah moves into their care and that 
she and Davey kind of have like a promise that when he gets out of prison, might be a little while, that they have like a future together. Who else? And Sweet. Swede. We know, but we know Swede lives and becomes a writer. Like that's kind of like, yeah, yeah. We've got enough of that. Kid. Yeah, and I hope. I don't think there's any way that we can finish the book without Ruben surviving his asthma. So that's well, he's telling the story. So that's right, know, right. He could be telling it posthumously, I suppose. I suppose so. Heidi, what do you hope happens? Um, I hope that the right people die, and that Ruben finds his breath. <laughs> You hope that the right people die. So what if you don't know who the right people are right now? Well, that's what I'm afraid of. That's my fear. That you don't know what's right and wrong. Also, do you mean right and wrong, like in a cosmic sense or right and wrong I for mean, the novel? I just want Jeremiah Land to tell me what to do and stop being... I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, Hoping yeah, well, for characters in a novel is a complicated thing. That's exactly right. Yes. Because there are there are things that you need to do to tell a good story. Yep. Yep. And that costs the reader something. And that is as clear as I'm going to be about my expectation of the end of this novel. And so... It's like um, with... Yeah. Well, you know how when people like... So say it's like Harry Potter, right? Mm-hmm. Seven books. You've been reading them forever and ever. Like you're growing up with these books if you're reading them as a kid or or some TV show that's been on for a lot of years and you know, and then they say the ending is coming. And all these people have like their theories of what's going to happen or the things they want to have happen. And then at the end of the story, so many times people aren't happy with it because it wasn't what they wanted for the character. But then right. The question is, but does that mean that it wasn't right for the book itself? Like within the context right. of the story and distancing ourselves from that between our own hopes and what's right for this, like hoping for what we want. Right. right. Like looking That's a very at very complex thing. Yes. Looking at the competing forces of this novel, there are some things I expect will have to happen in order to tell a good story. And it makes me feel a little sad. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 That's my, but it also the part of telling a good story is the ending that is, and we've said this before a million times, the ending that is unexpected, but it's just what had to happen. Right. Yeah. So, right. and you're like, Oh, of course. Right. So, um, yeah. So predicting an in the end of a novel is tricky business because so, so anyway, I, I am emotionally invested in this novel. And so I, I, I hope the right people die and I hope Ruben gets his breath. Those are my two things. Well, speaking of endings that are surprising, don't forget that next week we are posting the first episode of our conversation on crime and punishment, which is a book we're going to be spending the next several weeks with, so or the next several months with, rather. So if you want access to those conversations, don't forget to head over to patreon.com slash close reads to support the show and then get access to those bonus episodes. And then also, don't forget that after next week, we are going to be answering your questions. So we will post the thread on Facebook there, uh, soon for that. But if you want to email your questions, you can do that. And of course, the way to do that is closereadspodcast at gmail.com. Heidi and Tim, do you want to add anything else before we let people, before we mercifully let people go? <laughs> no. All right. Well, with that then, for Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next week. And in the meantime, happy reading.